mindfulness mode 435. The physical therapists would just talk about how that affects their brain development, their later ability to read. And I thought, oh, I had no idea. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. This is Bruce Langford, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach. This is where you can reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I've been putting together a membership group called The Mindful Tribe Retreat. Oh yeah, it's a virtual retreat where you can join me, spend time with with me and a whole lot of other people, and you can build on the mindfulness you already have in your life. Now today's a big day for me because this is the first day I'm opening up the group for pre-sales. You can get an early bird price and be one of the founding members if you join up before June 26th. We'll have a two-hour live call every month And there'll be all kinds of perks, including, well, being part of the Mindful Tribe Retreat will connect you with like-minded people. You'll be a part of a vibrant mindfulness community where you will have accountability in your mindfulness practice. And you'll be able to ask questions and we'll have in-depth discussions about topics that, that really matter, like fear and pain and forgiveness and how how mindfulness can help us through all these challenges. There'll be free downloadable mindfulness tools and also guided meditations by me as well. Sign up right away. I'm only opening up this opportunity to be a founding member to the first 20 people who sign up. So sign up at mindfulnessmode.com slash MTR standing for Mindful Tribe Retreat. And if you have any challenges about the sign-up or have any questions at all about this group, just email me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. I'm always happy to hear from you. So so don't forget, sign up for the group, mindfulnessmode.com slash mtr. Now today, Mindful Tribe, we're going to be talking about walking. (laughs) Talking about walking. I always knew that walking could be a form of mindfulness, and it it really is with me a lot of times, especially when I walk on trails in nature. Now, today, we get to hear from someone who is so incredibly passionate about the fact that mindfulness can be found in walking. She even wrote an entire book on the topic. And the book is called A Walking Life. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Antonia Malchik. Hey, Mindful Tribe. I'm holding a book right here, and it is the author of this book that I have with me today. It's so exciting to have Antonia with me today. Hey, Antonia, are you in mindfulness mode? I am now. It's been a very hectic couple of weeks, so I've been slipping in and out quite a bit. But mindfulness is a practice, right? Drawing ourselves back into the present moment. So I am there at the moment. That's awesome. Well, Antonia is all about walking. And wow, she's written a fantastic book, which is called A Walking Life. And it is very much about walking. The subtitle is Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom. And what a great subtitle. Well, that's not actually the subtitle in its entirety. It's Reclaiming Our Health and Freedom One Step at a Time. 
because it does take a step-by-step process to do this, but health and freedom. If we had health and freedom in our life, what more could we really ask for? You know, really, when you think about it. I want to share a little bit more with Mindful Tribe about you, Antonia. Antonia Melchik is a writer who is fascinated with what it means to be human. In her new book, A Walking Life, she delves into the topic of community and how we can boost our creativity, our mental and physical health, and our freedom, like I said, through the natural act of walking. She wrote this book while on residency at the BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity in Alberta, Canada, and she previously worked as a journalist in Austria and Australia. She currently lives in Montana with her family. So, Antonia, this is so much fun to talk to you about this. And I was just saying to you just a few minutes ago that this book is almost like a book about community, which has a a large element of walking. Why is it that uh, community is such so closely connected to walking? Well, what I found when I was doing the research, and as I mentioned to you before we started, I didn't expect community to be such a huge part of this book. It wasn't in my proposal. I didn't think about it ahead of time, but I kept running into it the more I researched. You know, if you really look back in evolution, we all talk casually about how we used to live in tribes, right? And we'd Mm -hmm. support one another and depend on one another. And Part of that evolution and development of those tribal communities was that we evolved to walk on two feet bipedally as no other mammal does. Um, And it makes us very vulnerable in a lot of ways. And also it limits us in some ways and it expands our horizons in other ways. But there is kind of a theory that that bipedal walking, because of the vulnerability it causes, forced us to depend on one another and to rely on one another, which means you have to trust your tribe. You know, you have to trust that the people who go out and get the mammoth are actually going to bring it back and share. Mm-hmm. And the people who hunt the berries are going to bring them back and share. And that someone that you hand your baby to, if you're going to go pick fruit, is going to take care of them just as you would. In my mind, our bipedal walking is very much intertwined with how we build trust with one another face to face. And there's a deep evolutionary bedrock behind that trust that we don't think much about anymore. And but it's still there, that face-to-face interaction when we're reading each other's expressions and gauging responses and reactions. So that's a big part of it. Tell me about mindfulness and how that relates not only to your book and to walking, but in general. What how do you define mindfulness? To me, mindfulness is how a human being is most easily able to access compassion. And for me personally, I find that I am able to access compassion when I pay very close attention to my surroundings. So as I was writing the book, I was walking more and more. It was harder to write because I wanted to walk. And I would play around with sort of meditative walking. I have a friend who hunts all the time and he took me in the woods where there's no paths and you really have to pay attention to everything around you. And the more I did that, the more, you know, you watch a flower or even like a piece of garbage, someone's dropped in the woods. Obviously, I pick it up afterwards. But if I just give my attention to the small details around around me, I find that I'm more compassionate with myself and with other people. I'm just more patient. I'm calmer. I'm less anxious. And, And that is what mindfulness means to me. 
whatever path it is that allows us to access compassion. So can you tell us why walking is so healthy for our brains? (laughs) That's a really, really complex answer. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And boy, you go into the detail. You really do. I take my hat off to you because you go into so much detail in the book and it's quite fascinating. Oh, I'm really glad because uh, obviously when you write about science, you don't want to bog people down too much. But I got really fascinated with it. My kids were both delayed in walking, which is part of what got me interested in the scientific side of it. And the physical therapists would just talk about how that affects their brain development, their later ability to read. And I thought, oh, I had no idea. And then I watched them and they're, you know, anyone who's watched a kid learning to walk or taking that first baby step, which is such a massive milestone, you know, they're tumbling and falling and they get up again and they do it like, you know, thousands of steps a day. It's crazy when you consider the risks that they're taking. But while they're doing that, they're stimulating the vestibular system, which is in your inner ear. And that system is what allows you to walk on a planet that's rotating in space, which again is something that we don't think about very often that this planet is, you know, circular basically, and it's moving really fast. And so our bodies, when we're on the, taking these bipedal steps, we have to balance ourselves to move forward. And there's just a lot of complex information coming in um, visually. You know, you're walking down a sidewalk, maybe someone's walking a dog towards you and you both react to each other without even thinking about it. And when you do that as a child, that helps your hippocampus grow. And it helps you with uh, things like mathematics, like adding and reading and syntax later because you learn to order things and rate them as near and far and up and down and all sorts of complex stuff. And it turns out that walking regularly helps prevent depression and Alzheimer's. You know, obviously it's not like a vaccine, but but it is an indicator um, of your likelihood to get those things. So it is deeply intertwined with our brains, partly due to how complex it is. Antonia, what was the biggest revelation that came to you as a result of writing this book? There's a few. (laughs) Honestly, I wrote it, I started writing it in September of 2016. And so the entire process was against this, uh, I don't want to say political backdrop, but a social backdrop worldwide of increasing tensions and different narratives. And The thing that kept coming back to me when I talked with people who had done a big walk, like walked for six months or walked around the world or done a a few hundred miles was really how connected we are and how how much people want to help each other and how compassionate people truly are. And it doesn't seem like that comes from walking, but it's those face-to-face interactions that really, really brought it out in people. And the other more kind of random thing is uh, jaywalking, which I'm not as familiar in the, with the laws in Canada, but in the U.S., you can't, there's very specific laws about where you can cross the street on foot. And once I dug into the history of that, you know, everyone's surprised. They never thought about, oh, jaywalking was invented like 100 years ago because you used to be able to walk anywhere on the street. So that's always an interesting one to, to kind of get into and say, yeah, it didn't always have to be like this. That is interesting. Now, as a journalist, what was your favorite thing to write about back then? Well, I wasn't a very good journalist, which is why I only did it for two years. I didn't know that. (laughs) Um, I'm more of an essay writer, which is I I think of it as an exploration rather than um, 
you know, really digging for things. Uh, in Australia, I worked in an IT magazine and that was more interesting than it sounds. Um, I learned a lot about all sorts of technology, but I also got to meet a lot of really interesting people. I used to do this column called Five Minutes With, and I would talk to these IT managers or CIOs. And one of the questions was, if you weren't doing this job, what you would what would you be doing? And it still sticks with me. It was almost 20 years ago now. And they always had the most fascinating answers. Like they had very clear ideas of a different life, like leading scuba diving trips or running a big hotel in Europe. Um, you know, just this visions of what their lives might be like if they weren't doing this specific corporate job. So I really love doing that. Well, another interesting thing was a story you told in the book in the chapter eight about these two young Marines, and then they ended up starting. Would you tell us about that? That was fascinating. The Montana Vet Program. Yes. Yeah. Many people have heard of Warrior Hike, which was a program that was started to help war veterans with PTSD, and they take them on big hikes through the Appalachian Trail, usually really long. And these guys wanted to do something a little bit different. They were both Marine snipers. They both... I think they've done six and eight tours, respectively, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and it's kind of a long story how they got into it. But one of them is from Montana, near where I'm from. And, uh, you know, they lost so many friends in those wars and mm. continue to lose friends, frankly. You know, we're, we're, the U.S. government is still there. So that keeps adding up. And they struggled so much with the guilt of it. Uh, and then in how to help their fellow veterans. So they started this program where they would take, I think it was originally just Marines, and I think they branched out now into other service members. They're also talking about working with firefighters and policemen. Um, so they take these vets with PTSD and they lead them on 100-mile treks into Montana wilderness areas. And they're deeply uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable. Like it's cold, it's wet sometimes, the food isn't always great. There's grizzly bears around. But part of their whole point is putting your body through the suffering. And the way that their program is different is they take, they carry what's called a pig egg, um, which is 70 pounds. And I'm sorry, but I can't remember how to transfer that into kilograms well, that's okay. <laughs> um, for a Canadian audience. It has a dog tag of everyone who's died in those wars. And that's over 6,000, I think close to 800 service members. So it is... It's really heavy. You're talking about carrying it 100 miles on uneven terrain. And what it allows them to do is to feel the weight of their grief and their guilt and whatever else it is that they're carrying. And what that really brought home to me is that when we talk about carrying emotions, carrying grief, carrying fear, we don't often think about how physical that is. And that and gives a physical feeling to it for them. They can feel the weight of what they're carrying. And at the same time, they're connecting with people who know what they've been through. So they're able to talk about their experiences in ways that they can't do with people who really don't know what it's like. That was very impactful, that story. Now, you talk about people who are disabled, and that was very interesting. In chapter seven, you talked about it. And and can you share a bit with us about how, you know, even if you're disabled, there's something to be said about walking. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I make the point in the introduction, because this was a very important subject to me, that I've come to think of walking not as just walking on two feet as we evolved to do, but as being as fully present in the world as is humanly possible for 
whatever that looks like for you, you know, moving through the world in whatever way you can. Um, and I do have members in my own family who are in wheelchairs, and that's part of why I am chronically interested in the subject. Mm -hmm. Like, where can we take you to lunch and get you there? And how many barriers are there? Um, but then I was also talking to a paleoanthropologist at Dartmouth College, and he kind of studies disability. You know, it's very common to think that way back in those tribal societies, if you broke a bone, that was it. Like there was no, there's no sidewalks, there's no hospital, there's no wheelchairs. That just wasn't going to happen. So if you were disabled in any way, then uh, as he said, your leopard food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there has been a lot of research on how much people supported one another. So there are, you know, bones that are millions or hundreds of thousands of years old that show evidence of trauma that is healed, which means they had to have people take care of them, which again leads to these theories of cooperative societies. We evolved to take care of one another. And then, you know, I also go into robotics and advanced prosthetics and all these different ways that we use technology, which kind of leads into the wider question of, you know, every time we're faced with new technology, we have to learn to be the user of it rather than it being the user of us. So does that technology serve us um, instead of us serving it? And I always find that a fascinating question. But when it comes to disability, you know, there's a lot being developed out there. But when it comes to infrastructure design, that's really where the work needs to be done because people can access a lot more if there's decent sidewalks and, you know, good buses and things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they definitely can. Well, there's a feeling in parts of this book that it was written by a scientist. Do you <laughs> almost feel like you are a scientist? Um, my undergraduate degree was in mathematics. Um, okay. And most of my father's family, they're all engineers. I, I, and my older sister did, uh, what did she do? Astrophysics. So science is very much in my blood. <laughs> right. Okay. So I wasn't just imagining that. <laughs> no, no, I do. I do do a, a bit of science writing. It kind of depends on the subject. Uh, some of them are more accessible than others. I found, I love paleoanthropology and geology and I find robotics almost inaccessible. So that part was very, very difficult for me. So I had to keep bugging people. Oh, did you, you explain what this word means? Cause I just, I'm still not getting it. So mm -hmm. yeah, as a science writer, if you want to be able to explain things to lay people, you've got to understand it yourself in a way that makes sense. And is still true to the actual science. That's true. I really appreciated how you connected walking in nature and how nature is a very important element for us as well. And of course, nature is often talked about when we talk about mindfulness. So let's talk about nature and walking. Well, again, you're going back to evolution, which is, you know, we did not evolve with a bunch of skyscrapers and concrete roads and traffic rushing by. We evolved, right. evolved with that rustling trees and the savanna. And we want to go back to the science. There's now been a fair amount of research. And I learned about most of this while I was in Canada at the BAMP Center um, in Japan and Germany and Scotland, actually, are the main places that have been studying the effect of nature on people. It lowers your cortisol le levels. So like walking through a forest in Japan, it's called Shinrin-yoku or forest bathing. It decreases your blood pressure. So there are all sorts of actual physiological ways that nature is really, really good for you. A Stanford study on creativity, they found that walking increases creativity, like creative thinking and problem solving for a significant period of time. Walking in nature does it more. There's been some other studies that I, I don't think I included this one in the book, that teens who live near green spaces actually have less aggression 
There was another one out of Britain that wasn't in there. Living near green spaces actually decreases the difference in health outcomes for people who have a lower socioeconomic status. So even if you live in a really poor neighborhood, if you have access to green spaces, it helps your health enough that it can make up for some of the differences in, in money flow. Not that, you know, a tree is the same thing as medicine um, when you need it, but it, it definitely makes a difference. So all sorts of mental health ways like depression, it really helps. And then obviously the physical ways when you're talking about stress levels and blood pressure. Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk about the L word because that was a big word in this book, loneliness and how loneliness is connected to walking or maybe I should say combating loneliness. How are these two things related? Well, to combat loneliness or to counter loneliness, um, I think you really need to have human to human interaction. Um, and it, social media just doesn't do the trick. You know, it's it's still it's still too new. It's too shallow. We're not evolutionary evolutionarily <laughs> equipped <laughs> for it yet. It makes such a huge difference when people can spend time with other people. Loneliness is it. You probably know this in Canada more than we do in the U.S., but the health outcomes for being lonely are really dire. I, I think I read mm -hmm. in the research that being obese increases your risk of dying early by, I don't know, 25%, something like that. Being lonely increases it by something like 45%. 45%. Yeah, wow. that's when, it, you know, there are different numbers yeah. from different sources, but they're all really high. And the main right. researcher, Dr. Kachoko, who's, um, who, who's worked on, did work on loneliness for a long time. He said the only difference is that uh, loneliness makes you a lot more miserable than obesity does. And so, you know, you look around a lot of, um, say, drug overdose problems in the U.S., which we have a lot of. And you can pin that down to that social pain, that feeling of isolation. Um, not all of it, obviously, but if you're trying to escape psychological pain, it's coming from somewhere. And I think loneliness is a big part of that. There was another story I didn't put in there. I really wanted to, and I just couldn't fit it in. Oh, and we get to hear it now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's this guy in Los Angeles yeah. who had started a people walking business. And I think uh -huh. it was about $7 an hour. And his idea was, you know, people who don't feel safe walking to a park or a doctor's appointment or something. And what he found was people just wanted someone to walk and talk with. They were lonely. And he said, even people with kind of busy lives, the problem is they didn't see their friends often enough because they're maybe working three different you know, gig jobs, and they just don't have time to just hang out with their friends. And so they just wanted someone to walk and talk with, and it made them feel a lot better. So well, those connected communities is, uh, is where it's at, I think, for loneliness. Antonia, how much do you walk? A lot more than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I don't get in five miles a day, I feel fidgety. And, and like on Saturdays, I almost never walk anywhere because my kids are home and they just mm -hmm. want to chill out. I like getting it up to about 10 miles a day if I can, but it's all through just doing normal stuff. Like I, you know, I'll wander and listen to an audio book for research, um, doing running errands, taking my kids to school. So I love getting in 10 miles a day. That's kind of my happy place, but at home, oh. it doesn't always happen. <laughs> and is this rubbing off on the rest of your family? My husband more slowly than he's English and he kind of at first really like the American lifestyle. But now that we've moved into my hometown and we can walk everywhere, he does 
more. He likes to bike. But for my kids, absolutely. It's given them so much independence. There was a period this winter when it was, goodness, I have to convert the temperatures again, but it was minus 40 centigrade. Um, uh, sorry, Fahrenheit, wind chill factor. Right, right. And so we couldn't walk to school because we just get frostbite. So we could yes. bundle up enough, but you couldn't cover sure. the skin well enough. And after a few weeks of that, we were all grumpy and fidgety. And it took a little time to get my kids back into walking to school again. They're like, oh, just drive us. And I said, nope, we're going to walk. And then they got back into it and felt better. So, Isn't that something how once you start to get away from it, it, you just stay away from it unless you really discipline yourself to jump back into it. It seems like that to me anyway. Yeah, I think it's like a good healthy eating regimen. You have to want that more than you want to be lazy about it. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering by writing this book, what was your overall goal? Honestly, truly do want people to walk more and to help make walkability a possibility for everybody, because I think it's deeply linked to our freedom, um, our freedom of movement as, and our freedom of thinking. Just, you know, when you're walking, your, your thoughts are looser. Um, but I just, you know, I feel like there's a lot of pain in the world right now. And at every turn, you know, if I got stuck, I would go for a long walk and, just try to think, is what I'm doing serving that pain? And if not, how do I shift it a little, a little bit? Can I help people with that just a tiny bit, help them feel more connected, help them feel like the world's a good place, help them feel like they have the power to change a little something in their lives, no matter what's going on. Well, I want to talk about meditation. And of course, many people see walking as a form of meditation. But what can you share with us about the whole idea of walking as a form of meditation? You know, it's interesting. I, I couldn't find a whole lot of research on this, but Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, yeah. right? Thich Nhat Hanh yeah. did write a book on walking meditation, but it's sort of like little walking meditations. Right. Um, and I did talk to a few researchers to say, you know, if you're commuting an hour each way to work in a car and then you're sitting at a desk for eight hours and you come home and you're tired, is it maybe better to go for a mindful walk than it is to sit some more because sitting is incredibly unhealthy for us and, and try to, you know, get your monkey mind to, to calm down. And as, as far as I could tell, you know, if anyone knows a different answer to this, please do email me because I would love to know if someone has been researching this, um, for myself, because I have some really severe back pain problems. Mm. I do meditate most days, but I, don't like it as much as I like walking meditation. So I try to integrate more walking meditation into my days, just slow, mindful walking. When I'm out with my friend who, who hunts, it's amazing because you have to walk so slowly and so quietly. And you were looking really carefully at everything around you. And it's exactly what it is, you know, except for the end result, uh, you know, but you can do that with a camera too, if you want to go look for animals or just on its own. Um, so I find walking meditation actually it leaves me really alert and attentive in a way that sitting meditation doesn't usually. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. It, it leaves you more alert. Were you ever bullied? Do you have a bullying story that you could share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference? You know, I knew this question was coming up, so I kind of struggled with how to answer it. because It's not something I talk about a lot, but in my childhood, it was my home that was not the safe place. My mother was very, um, 
we have a different relationship now, but she was very emotionally and psychologically abusive. And when I had my first baby, I thought back to that and it really made me think about embodied trauma. You know, we learn a lot more now about how we carry those childhood traumas within our bodies and they present in, in pain, in weight gain and all sorts of unhealthy habits. So I've been very, very interested in how either abuse or bullying does manifest in later adult life. Last year, our school district implemented a social emotional learning curriculum and I, I don't know if you're in your work in bullying, if you've seen some of those, um, but I love it. I think it's, right. you know, every week and it's by grade level. So it depends on how old the kids are, what they learn, Yes, that they learn a lot of physical strategies. And I was talking with this other mom that I'm friendly with, and she was really frustrated that our standardized test scores have been slipping. And she said, man, you know, we've got this sustainability center and we have the social emotional curriculum and they don't have time to focus on the basics and we really need to focus on those. And so I had to open up and tell her a bit about my own childhood, which I didn't want to do because we're not really close friends. Mm -hmm. But I said, if I had had that in school as a child, like it wouldn't have probably made any difference in my home life, but it would have given me a different framework, a different scaffolding that as an adult, I could have worked with and maybe, you know, been a lot healthier about a lot of things much earlier in my life. Um, As it was, I floundered around and searched for different strategies and struggled with a lot of things. But I think that those social emotional learning curriculums, if they get implemented in schools, along with very aware and perceptive bullying, uh, anti-bullying regimens, then, you know, you you never know what effect those are going to have because you never know what people are struggling with in their lives. And, uh, you know, nobody that we knew really knew what was going on in our house, but it would have made a difference for me. Definitely. Mm. That's a great story. As we move forward in the interview, Antonia, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Oh, I love that one. This is going to be a slightly strange answer. His name is David Bursud, and he is a former president of the Mathematical Association of America, I think either the MAA or the AMA. And he was my advisor in my undergraduate program, my mathematics advisor. And he took, when I was a freshman, I was taking a class from him and he did one outdoor class, math department didn't go outside. And he talked about going to church and how important that was for him, even though he wasn't religious, because it connected him to community, connected him to people and provided all sorts of non-religious meaning in his life. And when I started traveling overseas and I lived overseas, I really took that with me. Um, And just, and it wasn't just the going to church. It was um, his awareness that life is a whole thing. It's not just what you study. It's not just your job. It's not just your relationships. It's all of it. And and just in that conversation, he really imparted that to me. And um, I've carried that always. Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, my number two question is how much or how has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's definitely made me more aware of them sometimes in ways I don't like. <laughs> mm. uh, I am very conscious now of how high my anxiety levels are. And I didn't, I think I just buried that before. Um, and again, that embodiment, um, I, I really start to look at what does that feel like in the body? What does anxiety feel like? What does depression feel like? When my kids are unhappy, how does their gait change? How is their walk different? Um, And so I'm, you know, I'm just actually wildly curious about the role of emotions in the physical body much more than I used to be. 
How is breathing a part of your mindfulness? Oh, it's essential. Every time I get nervous, every time my kids are throwing a tantrum, everything. It's just okay. And you can feel the heart slow down and the anxiety reduce. It's, it's absolutely necessary. Antonia, your book, A Walking Life, is a fascinating read. It really is so much in-depth information, scientific look at walking and stories. It's really excellent. But if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would you recommend? So for most of your listeners, probably the books that I've read are pretty standard. So I don't know if that's as interesting, but this actually wasn't in my research. I was walking in town with a friend and she randomly mentioned this conference that she'd been to. And there was a woman there who's a walking coach in the Netherlands, which I'd never heard of before. And she handed out these um, walking meditation cards. And so I got in touch with this woman and I ordered a set of these cards. And one thing about all the mindfulness books for me is that I love reading them, but I don't feel that I'm able to put much into practice afterwards. Like they they kind of changed my mind, but then I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And what I love about uh, her name's Danya De Groot. I think her website is Dow to Change. And uh, what I love about these cards is they're very specific strategies. Uh, you take a thought or a question for a walk, usually in nature. So one of them is think of three habits that you really want to change. Go for a walk and you find a tree or you look at a pond, something like that. And you think if nature, you know, if this thing had that habit, what would it look like? And, you know, what, how would it want to change it? And it just it puts everything in such a very different perspective. So it's able to take mindful walking and give a very a good direction to it, especially when I'm feeling lost about something. So I loved using those. That is so interesting. And it's, did you say it's DAO to change? So DAO and then the number right. two and then change. Um, oh, DAO number two and mm-hmm. then change.com? I believe so. Right. Um, I can Dow definitely email change. that to you. and Yeah, and I'll put it in our yeah. show notes as well. Uh, Dow to change. That's very interesting. I think yeah. that's fascinating. I love them. Yeah, very cool. Well, you know, I didn't uh, so far mention how we can reach out to you. What's the best place to find you? What's your, your website? Where can we connect? Uh, my website is antoniamalchik.com. That's A-N-T-O-N-I-A-M-A-L-C-H-I-K. People often put an extra C in my last name. It, that won't get you anywhere. Um, and, and my email address is on there and my mailing address. So if people still feel like writing letters. Oh, we can yeah. write you a letter. Yeah, I love letters and I love to write That's back. Very so. cool. And I'm going to repeat it again. It's Antonia. Malchik, A-N-T-O-N-I-A, and Malchik is M-A-L-C-H-I-K.com. Antonia, this has been a pleasure. It's really been interesting to talk to you about walking. I thought, like, I have to be honest, when I first, when I first knew about your book, I thought a whole book on walking. Wow. And I thought, (laughs) I've got to see this. I thought, how can someone write a whole entire book on walking? And I found out <laughs> you're the person. <laughs> well, and I, th- so I thank you for doing it and for sharing it with the world. That's that's great. Thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. It was. Yeah. All the best the opportunity. To you. you too. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Bye now. 
Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. Remember, Mindful Tribe, this is the first day that you are able to sign up to be in the new membership group that I'm putting together, the Mindful Tribe Retreat. And you can get an early bird price and be one of the founding members, one of the 20 original founding members. If you join up right now, and there will only be a limited time to do that, we'll have a two-hour live call every month, and there will be all kinds of other perks that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Being part of this Mindful Tribe Retreat will connect you with some terrific like-minded people, and it will be a lot of fun. I'm absolutely going to guarantee it. The group will give you accountability too to your mindfulness practice. So sign up at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash mtr and like i said you can always email me bruce at mindfulnessmode.com so once again thanks for listening to the show and don't forget stay in the mode mindfulness mode